Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Skift Ideas podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm delighted to have Bill Bensley with us, uh, founder of Bensley, and he is affectionately known as the Willy Wonka of design. He founded Bensley in 1990, and which is a small atelier of youthful, energetic architects, interior designers, artists, and landscape architects that know no limits. He's widely celebrated for his hotel, landscape, and interior designs, alongside with his passions for conservation and philanthropy. And throughout his year, he's seamlessly and brilliantly combined his work with these two passions to benefit the environment and the communities in which he's created these projects. So, Bill, I've been a longtime fan. It's really nice to have you here. Good morning to Bangkok. It's uh, Sunday evening in Los Angeles, but looks like a nice morning over there. Yes, good morning. Yes, good morning. It is a very nice morning here. Thank you for having having me on it's your show. It's a pleasure. Now, I want to understand a little bit of your earlier life. You know, you, you grew up in California um, before the world, before kind of traveling in the world and, and landing where you are now in Southeast Asia. Give us a little bit of the backstory, um, you know, your education and, and, early sort of intellectual history and interests and things like that. Well, that's a, <laughs> how many days do you have to discuss that? <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I grew up in Anaheim and amongst the walnut groves and the, in the, and the orange groves. And I was very fortunate that to, to grow up with two immigrant parents from England and they, they brought with them after the war to Canada and to, to California, they brought with them the ability to farm. So we, at uh, and and all two of my other siblings, we learned how to farm at a very very early age. We had chickens and ducks and rabbits and goose and bees and apricots and oranges, of course, and and every type of vegetable possible. And we supplied ourselves and and much of the neighborhood with with food. So that you know this. This funny world, funny word called sustainability. You know, sort of. I never heard of it until about 2017, but I certainly grew up with the principles of it. So it's something that's kind of informed from a very early stage. Now, went to school in in Boston, and tell me about some of your early early studies. Like, what 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 were you focused on at that point? Because at that stage, you you hadn't kind of moved into design as much as it was was it landscape yeah i went to cal poly pomona yeah and i enrolled there in 1977 and got my degree in in the landscape architecture and and did well there and that in doing so i won a full ride full scholarship to harvard where i did my bachelor's no my master's degree in urban design under the architect moshe softy and that was that was a, uh, a wonderful experience, but primarily because of my classmates, the classmates that I met there in school, not so much because of the professors and that my classmates ended up teaching me more than my cl- my courses, actually. Uh, I was the youngest in the class uh, and uh, the dumbest in the class for sure. Uh, 
And I just, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, but I, I did, I did get through it. And uh, at graduation day, I asked my good friend, Lech Bunag, who is an architect here in Bangkok, I said, Lech, where are you going to go? On, where are you going to go after graduation? He said, I'm going to go to Singapore. I said, well, where the heck is Singapore? And he says, well, it's under China, south of China. Can I, can, uh, and I said, can I come along? And so I did, and I, I backpacked after graduation. I backpacked through uh, through Europe at six dollars and forty six cents per day. Uh, that was when the, the dollar was stronger than the pound, and I, I had a wonderful time. And hitchhiked got to Kuala Lumpur by flight and hitchhiked down to Singapore because I ran out of money. And went and went and knocked on Lex's door. He let me in, thankfully. And the next day, I got a job at Bell Collins Landscape Architecture Company. And the next week, I was on a plane down to Bali designing Bali gardens. And the rest is history. It's it's funny how the you're, you've been you've been Bangkok based for forty years, but the the story kind of took place because of a chance meeting, which I which I love. Right. And, and what were your first impressions, you know, as you were spending time in in Singapore and Southeast Asia, you know, having studied in, I said Boston earlier, but obviously Cambridge and then obviously growing up in California, it had to have been like a bit of a sci-fi interesting experience, you know, for a traveler. I, I thought it was paradise. It was like, I, you know, I felt like I was gone going to, to uh, Tahiti for the first time. And in Bali in the early 80s was was really paradise. It was, there was in, in Kuta down to Legian, there was nothing but a dirt roads. And there was very few cars. I had one of the few cars on the island and it was mostly people, you know, riding bicycles. Uh, and all the way up to Ubud through the Cyan Road, that was still a dirt road. It was one way. Um, and there was very few people that, that, you know, would travel on the roads and you'd stop you ran out of gas or if you something wrong with your car that there would be 10 people that come out of the village and they would push me out of old Volkswagen Safari and they would push you right and then everyone you scream with laughter and yell and the, 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 the thing got running again and I was happy and it wave like this and I learned how to speak Indonesian and of course and it was it was paradise and as a as a designer at that time, landscape, but also uh, someone with a, a sense of of space and aesthetic, you know, who were you? Who were you inspired by? What were you taking in? Because I feel like at that time you had to have been really pulling a lot of beautiful things from Balinese architecture, kind of pulling in a bunch of references that you know, as we'll discuss in the future, that you kind of made into your own thing, but. What was that phase of your sort of ingestion and inspiration look like? Well, I, I madly ingested uh, everything Balinese. I became a Baliophile. I read, you know, everything that was printed on the subject and Miguel Covarrubias's books and Colin Fee's books and the island of Bali and, uh, and began to, to speak some Balinese uh, and went everywhere in Bali. So I, I just... I just ingested it, but absolutely, I went to hundreds of, of Balinese temples and understood the idiosyncrasies in between each one, why they were so different. Um, and then 
I was also influenced by a man named Jeffrey Bawa, who was a Sri Lankan architect at the time. And he was in the 70s, he had built a, perhaps Bali's, it sounds horrible, but perhaps Bali's first suburbia. And he built 12 homes on the beach in a place called Batu Jimbar, which is in Sanur. And, and very fortunately, fortunately, I was able to meet a man called uh, Frank Morgan, who I'm still very fond of, American. I traveled, he's traveled all over the world. And he's about 92 now. And he got, he asked me to do a, a swimming pool in his place, which led to um, some work on Adrian Zeka's house down the road, and then his brother's Alan Zeka's road up the up the road. So I, I, I just kept doing these beautiful Jeffrey Bawa houses, which is a wonderful place to start. What was the what was the initial kind of interaction with Adrian like? You know, um, obviously for those that don't know. Adrian built Amman hotels, among many other things, and is a widely cited as a visionary and a very interesting person. But I, I, I would love to know the early days, Bensley, Zeka, sort of like link up, and what that, what those interactions were like as you were as we, you were young. Well, the the um, how to say the early early days, Adrian is is still and, and was then the consummate gentleman he was uh, a very very polite person that had, had has and had time for everybody from the gardener to the president's uh, uh, so it was it was delightful I worked on his house which then later became uh, uh, later became owned by another person that that's when I worked on it but he Adrian was the first person when I opened my own business to actually send me a congratulatory note and saying, uh, you know, that best wishes and such. And so that, that sort of proves what a, what a gentleman had a, and what time he had for a young person that, that I was at the time. It's amazing. Now, as, as you're in, as you're working on all these different projects, you know, how when were you starting to find your own design vernacular when were you starting to find the the bill bensley style that that everyone kind of understands from all of your high profile projects but like you know you're in your ingestion phase and your learning phase but when did you start to have that spark of of having things that felt like a like an idea coming from you well the the um I think probably the first spark and the first was when I worked on, that was that very first week that I got sent down to Bali. And I went down there to work on uh, Carrie Hill's project, um, which he was then working for Palmer and Turner out of Hong Kong. It was his project and it was called the Bali Hyatt and that was in Sanor. And I, amongst, along with my traveling, my extensive travels through through Bali, I came across a beautiful place that was 12th century Hindu temple, and it was called the Goa Gaja, or the Elephant Cave. I fell in love with it, and I, and I did a whole series of sketches of that place, and uh, we ended up uh, building it in 
in Batu andesite and andesite stone in the, in Java and, and bringing it into bringing it into to Bali. And at that point, nobody had ever done a a giant non fiberglass, the giant real uh, uh, a real really big sculpture. And we sat it in the middle of a pool, and from that point on, the, the, my phone didn't stop ringing because it was the first time that anyone had ever really looked seriously at vernacular architecture uh, in, in, a, in a strictly landscape sense. So then at one point, I was doing seven out of the eight new hotels that were coming up in Jakarta, and it's because I was so, so into celebrating the, the indigenous arts and culture of Indonesia, which hadn't really been done by then. Which is exciting because sometimes it takes an outside perspective, you know, whether it's a journalist or whether it's a designer to almost tell a community why something is special. I think sometimes having the out the outside gaze is is can be pretty powerful, right? <laughs> yeah, can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah, that's that's, that's right. interesting. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit um, about you've been very. It's the talk and it's the trend about communities and integration, but you've been doing this since the beginning of your career in terms of the harmonious integration of local communities, of craft, of that detail into your projects. And I would just love for you to talk about what sparked that and how it's part of your operating system now in terms of how you work. Well, I realized right from the, right from the very, you know, that those few early weeks that the thing that uh, was gonna make my gardens special was being able to work with these incredibly talented craftsmen that are all throughout throughout Bali, throughout Java, throughout Indonesia, and throughout all of Thailand and Southeast Asia. And that was especially India. And it was a, uh, how to say, it was a race to try to understand uh, what could be done by each of these, each of these craftspeople and how I could uh, get my clients to to actually pay for things, you know, expensive things at the time, because you got to remember that in the early '80s, that landscape architecture really wasn't known. Nobody knew what we did, and there was there was only one one uh, university in all of Southeast Asia, in all of Asia, one university that was teaching landscape architecture, and that was Chulalongkorn University here in Bangkok. So that 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 it was it was a, a brand new science, if you will. So to be able to to teach to 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 tell the general manager of the of the Bali Hyatt, hey, I need a hundred thousand dollars in order to to build this sculpture in the middle of your swimming pool. You know, it that it was it was uh, uh, how to say it was something new and and. and it was sometimes difficult to get them to buy into it, but that was perhaps one of my um, fortes, if you will, was the, is the drawing part. As you can see behind me, I'm sitting in a studio where I draw hundreds of hundreds of images every month. 
but that was one of my my fortes was being able to draw in a convincing manner to be able to convince that general manager at the Bali Hyatt to be able to put his capex into that into those projects. So so even even a visionary landscape architect or an interior designer first has to sell the vision. And so your your drawing was the was the shorthand to kind of be the sales process, so to speak. Right, right. My drawings and, and my drawings that even in the eighties were sometimes my presentations were 50, 60 meters long. So on that too, right? It, you know, that that too uh, blew everybody's mind. You know, how can how can they draw such things? And we used to use spray paint and we'd draw by hand and we'd use color marker because, of course, nothing was done by, by Photoshop at that point. And we used watercolor and it was a real, so I had this, this atelier of, you know, 50, 60 people in the 80s that would spend all night long for several nights in a row to create these giant murals that were unmistakably um you just couldn't say no <laughs> you're sure un- unmistakably convincing sure in terms of the sweat equity in terms of the love in terms of the care and the craft that went into them right that's, that's interesting now when did you make the jump right so you started w- with the landscape world now you're known for you know, incredible designs of all sorts of interesting hotels. But when did you expand your vision of, of kind of what could be done underneath your, you know, your talent? Well, it really, really wasn't more, it wasn't a jump, but rather it was more of a slither into, Got it. yeah, <laughs> more, more of a slither into uh, uh, this, the, into architecture and that, and that we were doing a series of, a series of, of landscape gardens for uh, an entrepreneur here in Thailand called Bill Heineke with Minor Group. And, and we knew that he was going to be doing a project in, uh, in Koh Samui, and that was the Four Seasons. So we uh, just, how to say, just showed up at his office and said, without a contract, right? We just, without a contract, we said, this is what it should look like. And he said, yes, thank you. Later, we negotiated a small fee, and, but that was, that's the way I slithered into architecture. And at that point, was that the kind of ascent of Bill Heineke, like through the early days, because he's been such an interesting businessman, but at that stage, he was still on the ascent a little bit, but he had the vision to buy what you were selling yeah very much so yeah very much very much yeah i did the first anantara which was the started out as royal garden in Wuhan. that was our first time and then that was that that's where we went through the whole name change and i was part of that uh from royal garden village which was really a real funky name to anantara which is an, an almond wannabe sort of name which was everybody was doing in the early 90s at that point interesting i didn't i didn't realize that that there was the counterfeit adrian zeka hotels but it makes sense because it seemed like it was working <laughs> right yeah oh everybody in the early 90s wanted to be an almond 
So Interesting. Everyone went to that Sanskrit name, and everyone was opening spas, and that was that was sort of the hot shit thing. You know, your day job is designing with nuance, very interesting, inspiring spaces. But I want to understand, you know, where you go for your inspiration. Um, is it a hotel? Is it a place? I would love to understand where where you what feeds you in terms of your own travel. Uh, what feeds me is actually doing the absolute opposite of what I do during my day day job. Is that I, I love to get out into places and find places in the world where man hasn't screwed it up yet. And one of those places is is the Delga River in Mongolia, which we go to every every year for the last ten years, and we we travel through two hundred three hundred kilometers of of river and by boat by horse etc we're fishing along the way and of course it's there's no cell phone and we actually have to talk to each other uh that i find that is the most refreshing most uh uh inspiring place uh, and you know it, it ties back to my philosophy and a lot of our work now is that um it is in places that are of great natural beauty right so and going into a virgin forest and trying to do something like we're doing now in the Congo. And they, and I look at a, I look at going into those places as an exercise of how can I build something here that won't look out of place, won't look, that won't, it's it's really an exercise in mitigating the damage that I'm going to create. So that ties back to Mongolia and how when I go to places like Mongolia and understand how beautiful Mother Nature is and how how perfect she is, it gives me inspiration for 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 trying to build and understand her and even better. That makes sense. It's a good. Yeah, totally. And and it it's a good segue to talk about some of your work with Shintamani Wild. You know, I th- I feel like the underlying intent obviously conservation and the relationship between guests and conservation, but also the architecture. I mean, the the hotel is basically built to disappear as I understand it, and it's fairly harmonious with the with its environs. Did you achieve your vision there or is there more to do no i think we've achieved our vision there although we do have a couple of projects to, left to do but uh, whenever you can get a place to have one one tent per 50 acres of land um it's it's easy enough to make that tent disappear uh, so that and what we what we did there is is it has a very very light footprint that just sort of tiptoes onto the onto the topography and we didn't change one iota of the ground one iota we didn't do any grading we didn't do any felling of trees and so forth and it took quite a long time it was probably the hardest thing i've ever built because of oh a number of a, a number of disasters that happened along the way but yes it's a, it is and also quite, quite remote as well, you know, I mean, similar to some of the camps in Africa that are pretty far out there. So it's not like the logistics are easy. 
No, it's very remote. That was a big problem too, is that, yeah, we were quite off the grid when we started. And then, and then as, as, as in the rest of the world, the population gets closer and closer. And so your walls have to go up higher and higher. And then we were prepared to do this, the entire project off of solar power. And then I, I uh, met the, the Minister of Environment uh, and he, uh, within the next month, sort of gave us uh, the, the, the electricity that we needed, which was wonderful. You know, you talked about how light touch um, the design was. And, you know, uh, we've talked about the idea of community. I also wanted to talk about some of the work you're doing in terms of building hoteliers and hospitality professionals from people that might not have found that as a profession, right? How, how you are working in Cambodia and other places, um, you know, the hospitality schools and kind of giving people a pathway upwards. I, want, I wanted to learn a little bit from you about that. About how, how that started? Yeah, and just and just how, how it started, how it's going, and why why it how it fills into your hotels and makes something more interesting. Well, my my partner in Cambodia, the Sukun Chanpridan, he he actually hired me to design the the Hotel de la Paix in Siem Reap, which was now the now the Grand Hyatt, now the Park Hyatt rather. And we, when we opened that hotel, we had a little, a little, he had a little guest house and such, and uh, strictly out of the essential, uh, the essential need to have people that were trained in to, to be able to work at Hotel de la Paix, we had to open a hospitality school to train these kids because there was no other hotels there. So we, opened this hospitality school and we had something like 3,000 people trying to, to get into 30 spots. Um, and then we've never had the heart in order to close it down after that. And that's what hundreds of kids and, and what, 15 years later, this December 2nd, we're, we're hosting a the alumni party where it's, it's our 15th year. And so the alumni are going to come back and, and tell about where they are now and, and give the, the new class that's coming up. It's also our graduation for 15th class, but it's, they're going to give a, a speeches about, you know, how what you can really do. And some of our, our kids have attained manager positions in both inside and outside of Cambodia, which is fantastic. Right. And some of them are just doing great. And they, they were in dead-end positions where they would have gone off to one of the factories and never been heard again. I like the notion, and I've written about this a lot, is that it's one of these rare professions that can kind of give geographic mobility. And you can build a worldly career, you know, if you're good. And regardless of how much money you have or, or where you went to school. Um, so it, it, I, I can't wait to hear some of these stories about where the alums have have gone off to. Yeah, me too. Yeah, have that. It's awesome. Yeah. Now I wanted to understand a little bit about like future projects, like what you're working on, what you're excited about. You know, stuff that you can obviously talk about that's not super secret, but um, things you know you have 
wider range of interests and projects, but what is um, where is the gravitational pull for for your interest right now? Well, I'm I'm super excited about these these four projects that we're doing in the Tri National Park in North French Congo. And there's a, there's a difference between the two Congos. There's a Belgian Congo and there's a French Congo. And the French Congo is, is, is safe. The Belgian Congo, not so, not so safe. And we, uh, we're building in what David Attenborough considers to be the world's last frontier, the world's last real wilderness. And uh, uh, Jane Goodall, called it the greatest population of, of chimpanzees in the world and much better than what she studied in Tanzania. And if you watch the watch the, the BBC production Our World, is that David Attenborough actually gets helicoptered into this large by, this opening within the within the forest canopy. It's a very, very dense forest and mil- it's millions of years old, but there's this place that's an opening it's maybe 200 meters by 150 meters and it's a place where salts and minerals are naturally found in the ground and every day at five o'clock the elephants go there and the gorillas go there to to have a cocktail hour of this of these salts and minerals and that's where David Attenborough was explaining all of what was happening there well that's my site Right, that is—it's the most incredible sight in the world to, to be able to see these elephants and the and the gorillas. That's one of our four sites, and that whole park, of course, it's getting eroded at the edges by um, poachers and loggers and such. And that park has, like Shintamani Wild, has has problems, and that can be solved by this very lightweight, almost invisible super high-end $4,000 per night uh, tourism to be able to support, uh, as we do at Chintamani Wild, um, rangers that facilitate you know, uh, catching the poachers, etc. And is there is African Parks working on some of that project in terms of the preservation of some of that land, or is it still very early days in terms of the protection? with with the NGOs and things like that they, uh, up there there yeah there's not uh, the African parks is not there and it's uh, nor there nor, nor are there any NGOs or very few NGOs yeah that, that I've been introduced to anyways but it's uh, it's a wilderness there that is only occupied by the Debaka people or you might know them as the pygmies and yep to travel with the pygmies. The last time I was on site, I had to. I was walking 52 kilometers in three days to be able to to see all the sites, and it was it was only because of the pygmies and following the pygmies that I was I was I could do that because they know the the, the forest there like the back of their hand. There are no sure, sure. no signage. There's no you know the GPS doesn't work. But that is really a great experience to be. That's that's incredible because you're putting your hands in, into people that have such a deep and intuitive understanding of the place that the, it might be scary for you, but it is kind of strangely safe in a way. Uh, you know what is that? Under how to say this is a when I was in put in the hands of these beautiful 
big meat people, and they really are four foot tall, um, four foot to five foot tall, and big smiles. But you know, we'd be walking along, and that there was a couple of them that could speak some English, and most of them speak some French. But the, they would say, you know, Bill, get down, right? And then what is it? Well, there's they, and I could barely hear anything, but they could say there's three elephants and there's two females, and they they've got one baby and they're walking to the northeast from us. So just be just be quiet. So they could tell just by the way that they were, just by the way that the, the leaves were crunching far off, they knew who was out there and what direction she she and her, her family was going. It was an amazing experience. And this happened with the gorillas, with the chimpanzees, with the bongos. There's, you know, there's bongos in the Congo, yeah? And with the bongos, and that's a very elusive animal. But uh, I, I feel so, how to say, so damn lucky to be able to, to be on the ground level of something like this. And also, to, I mean, it's, it's interesting to witness that extrasensory perception yes. like with your own eyes, you know, because it shows what, what the, how unique humans are, I suppose, in, in a way. And the last thing I wanted to talk about, because um, you're a busy man and have many things to work on, so I don't want to take up all your time. But you know, you've your your career has been characterized, as I understand it, by a little bit of serendipity, <laughs> a lot of a lot of in, a lot of intention, um, a, a lot of passion, but also just kind of following following the ebbs and flows of your interests. And I, I wanted to know, as you talk to young architects, as you talk, talk to new generation of hoteliers, you know, what is the um, what is the, the secret sauce or what are the things that you would like to impart to the, the people that are kind of coming up um, and, and wanting to make somewhat of a mark on, on the world? Uh, several things. Okay? There, there really are several things. And then on that, one of them is that, is that for, especially for architects and designers, interior designers, et cetera, is that is to, to get rid of the handphone. Yeah, yes, and, and go and travel, but travel without the phone and travel with a sketchbook. And this is something that I've been doing for years and I have, I fill up a sketchbook, you know, that 100 page stick every month. And it's, it's, it's so essential, I think, to be able to see something as opposed to snapping a picture and then you put it in the file and you never look at it again. If you draw mm-hmm. something, you really understand it. So that and understanding of form is essential and understanding of scale is essential. So oftentimes I will measure things, I'll pace things out, I'll, and I'll write notes about how big things are because scale is the key sauce, as you say, to understanding good architecture. I like that because phones are weapons of mass distraction. And also kind of take us a couple steps removed from the thing. And what I love about that that you just said is by connecting with a shape and connecting your mind to the scrape of a pen or a pencil, you're almost kind of imbuing a little bit of yourself into the thing, sure. which allows for a little bit of a, a deeper connection, uh, which, which is exciting to me. Um, but with that, thank you so much 
this was a wide ranging and awesome conversation. We're super, super happy to have you join us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Very interesting. It's, it's been a pleasure. That's all for us today. Lots of amazing takeaways from Bill Bensley. A huge thanks to him for joining. We have much to come on the future of travel and ideas, both on this podcast and future events. You can look at what's coming on skiff.com and also live.skiff.com. And the aim with this podcast is to celebrate and champion a lot of the ideas that are refining the way we look at the travel industry, whether that's through design, sustainability, creativity, or guest experiences. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Join us for future Skift Ideas podcasts as we speak with the most creative and forward-thinking innovators in travel. As always, go to skift.com to stay up to date on the latest news and insights across the travel industry.